This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We hope you enjoyed last week's interesting chat with Jerry Polikoff about things political over the past many decades. And uh, that's sort of a prelude to this quote I stumbled upon. And we like to do great quotes on the show on a regular basis. And I have to say, we may not have ever done a better one than this one. I think this one's pretty blue chip. It comes from author Thomas Pynchon. He said, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about answers. Oh my God, is there great wisdom in that? That one sentence might equal the entire essay from George Orwell on politics in the English language, although that, to be sure, is a hell of a good essay also. It does come down to how you frame things, doesn't it? This week, in fact, is serving us a very interesting example of how things get framed in the testimony of Trump attorney Michael Cohn before Congress. I observed the Democrats asking Cohn questions about Trump Trump's bad behaviors, etc., his role in them. The Republicans wanted to focus on, well, what a liar you are. I don't know why anybody would believe you. It certainly does seem, as we record this program, that big things are about to happen. And there's so much we could say about all of that. Cohn's testimony indicates that there is a very short link between WikiLeaks, Roger Stone, and Donald Trump. And since many sources, including Malcolm Nance, refer to the fact that the WikiLeaks data was obtained surreptitiously by Russian hackers, well, that loop looks pretty close to being closed. Best thing we could do is wait a few weeks, see where the chips are falling, and then talk about it. There's something else that is coming up of late, which I do want to mention, is the fact that President Trump's inaugural committee paid Trump International Hotel $700,000 to rent event spaces for four days in January of 2017 for the inaugural, in spite of internal objections that the $175,000 bill per day was more than double the normal rate. ProPublica has noted that if federal investigators determined that the committee paid above market rate, they could charge violations of laws against self-dealing. And another friend of mine did point out something, and I think I'd overlooked somewhere along the way, which was that Trump said back in 2005 that he received $17 million in an insurance payment for damage to his Mar-a-Lago resort caused by Hurricane Wilma. The AP looked into this and was unable to find any large-scale damage to the property. Trump said that, you know, he had an excellent insurance policy on this. By the way, a poll from NPR PBS NewsHour notes that 61% of Americans disapprove of Trump's declaring a national emergency to build the border wall. This includes 94% of Democrats and 63% of independents. Oddly enough, 85% of Republicans approve of this emergency declaration, which Congress just voted to repudiate. If anybody else can recall a time in history where, where Congress stepped up to repudiate a president declaring a national emergency, well, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com because we don't remember any. I don't know whether it's true, but Jonathan Chait, writing in New York Magazine, has alluded that Trump 
decided that the wall was critical for him only after conservative pundits like Ann Coulter began mocking him for not delivering on his signature promise, triggering his fear that his base might desert him in 2020. And by the way, another quote I've always been very fond of, sort of enters into this border wall discussion. It's a variation of that old phrase, any job worth doing is worth doing well. The variation I enjoy is that any job not worth doing at all is certainly not worth doing well. So I look at a photo in the news of of legislators trying to reach a bipartisan agreement on how we're going to go ahead and build this wall. I think, well, that's one compromise they need not worry about having to do well. As we record today, it appears that the president is over in Vietnam, a location that bone spurs kept him away from at, at some length back in the 60s. And although I, I missed this during the testimony, Mr. Miller confirms that uh, Michael Cohn said right from the horse's mouth, uh, the president admitted that, you know, he didn't have bone spurs. It was just stupid to go over there. Well, it's probably stupid for him to go over there right now, but he's there with the dictator he fell in love with, Kim Jong-un. Of course, Trump has been criticized for denying the fact according to what Vladimir Putin told him, that Kim Jong-un does not have intercontinental ballistic missiles. Radio Parallax is very skeptical that he does. And we do find it discomforting to find ourselves agreeing with Trump and Putin. And doggone it, I hate to be all gossipy about Trump, but I just can't help myself. How about this item? Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is refusing to confirm or deny that he nominated President Trump for the Nobel Peace Prize. Trump apparently boasted last week that Abe had shown him a beautiful copy of his five-page letter to the Nobel Committee. An Asahi Shimbun newspaper reported that Abe had nominated Trump following an informal request from the White House. Trump had previously griped that former President Barack Obama was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize after less than a year in office, and he's been lobbying for his own. There's something I didn't realize about national emergencies. This, this comes from The Economist magazine, is that well, they, they kind of just stick around sometimes. According to the magazine, nearly 40 years after Iranian revolutionaries took Americans hostage, Jimmy Carter's emergency declaration remains in force. And this is what The Economist had to say about this. Congress should take stock of its defenses against bad leadership and strengthen them, as in the 1970s after Richard Nixon's resignation. It could curtail emergency powers, say, by changing the law so that emergencies expire automatically after a month or two unless Congress reauthorizes them. Something else in that area we may want to take a look at is the fact that in Nixon's final days, the Pentagon issued orders that any extraordinary directives coming out of the White House needed to be checked with uh, further authorities. And finally, Bloomberg.com, not exactly a a leftist uh, publication, not exactly a leftist source of information, has said the following. President Trump's emergency declaration is a dangerous fraud. To begin with, there's no emergency at the border. The larger issue, however, is Trump's blatant assault on the constitutional separation of powers. Congress alone has the power of the purse. All right, let's talk about some non-Trump stuff, starting with some follow-up. I want to do some research into the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights, AB 241, signed back in 2013, because um, it, it seems that it has wreaked havoc on the industry that supplies personal attendance to take care of people in their own homes. 
The law extended overtime pay to insisted that you had to get it after nine hours in a given day or in excess of 45 hours in a week. I contacted uh, a caretaker who still working in the profession who took fine care of a family member many years back, and she confirmed to me that, yeah, it's true. And she noted that she personally would prefer to go to a house and stay there for many days at a time. But because of the way the pricing has to be structured now, the wages, um, the companies don't want to send people out to do that. It's created a whole level of complication. And um, I don't know. seems to be an example of the law of unintended consequences. And then some follow-up over Gavin Newsom and his announcement that he wasn't going to do the twin tunnels in California. He was just going to endorse one tunnel. Governor Gavin accrued even more publicity over his cancellation or curtailment at any rate of the uh, high-speed rail in California. We're not going to get involved in that controversy, but I do want to quote Henry Grabar, writing in Slate.com, who said, High-speed rail is flourishing all over the world, zipping passengers from city to city in China, Japan, France, and Italy. French and Chinese engineers offered to build California's bullet train, but our state planners arrogantly turned them away. So as it stands now, I guess you'd be able to take a bullet train between, like, Madeira and Bakersfield. It seems to us at Radio Parallax that if they're celebrating their 50th anniversary of high-speed rail in Japan, we should be ashamed. And yes, this probably has a lot to do with the lobbying efforts of the likes of... The oil companies, the car companies, the tire companies, etc. Mr. Millen suggests they take a new tack. We'll use high-speed rail to transport water down to Southern California. That might fly through the legislature. From our archives, in this case, an article from The Guardian, which we will quote from later today, uh, there was a piece from 04 that I stumbled upon and thought, I need to do some follow-up on this. The article back in November of 2004 was that Indian farmers had come up with what they thought was a new way to keep their crops free of bugs. Instead of paying hefty fees to chemical companies for patented pesticides, they instead sprayed their cotton and chili fields with Coca-Cola. Looking into this, it appears that some farmers 15 years ago did do this, and they felt it was effective in keeping down pests. Oddly enough, an Indian agricultural analyst endorsed the product, noting that farmers in India had traditionally used sugary solutions to attract red ants, which then fed on insect larvae, which sounds like a pretty cool biocontrol method to me. But no, it didn't catch on, and no, it wasn't being used because Coca-Cola is basically a pesticide. We don't wish to slander what is a refreshing beverage when used in moderation on this program. And in a twin item of follow-up, I printed up an article and noted that an advertisement was attached to it when I printed it up, which I didn't want, but there it was. And to make this even more disturbing, the advertisement is for Chile Easter Island Tours. I recently sent out a mass mailing to numerous friends talking about uh, trips down to South America, wherein I mentioned Easter Island. Coincidence? I don't think so. We'll have more to say about that stuff in a little bit. But the piece was about a, a Nike ad which aired during the Academy Awards ceremony, which was celebrating the behavior of Serena Williams, portraying it as a woman standing up for herself. We don't agree with this viewpoint. This reminds us of a previous Nike ad we didn't agree with many years back during the Olympics. The tagline was, You don't win silver, you lose gold. 
What a slur on athletes and the whole Olympic spirit. And by God, I think I'm going to boycott Nike. And here's an item from the miscellaneous file that's pretty irresistible to this program. It comes from a letter to the editor of New Scientist. And I know this whole story is apropos of nothing, but, well, just stay tuned. Said the writer, when I used the electric key fob to lock or unlock my car, no other car parked nearby has its locks activated. This is as it should be. But how does that system work? This prompted a response from Michael Eisenbach of Sebastopol, California, who said, One evening, I went to the market after dark and purchased groceries. Upon leaving, I went into the parking lot and seeing my blue car, pressed the fob, got in and drove off. When I looked over at the passenger seat, I saw items that weren't mine, and I realized I wasn't in my car, but somebody else's. I quickly returned to the parking lot, but the only space available was in the area reserved for people with disabilities. I parked the car there, found mine, and drove off. I've often wondered what the other driver thought when he or she eventually found their car. Let us add that we hope the surprised car owner did not also find a ticket for parking in the handicap. And in case you've ever worried in what order you should drink your beer and wine if you're drinking both on a given evening, you'll be cheered to know that research has now demonstrated that it is not true that beer before wine, you'll feel fine, comma, wine before beer, you'll feel queer. Crack researchers at the University of Cambridge over in the UK decided to test this old adage, and well, when they were done, the conclusion was the order of mixing your drinks has no effect on a hangover, and neither does having just beer or wine. So now you know. Some point during this show and, and next week's show, I want to report on a couple of field trips made to the San Francisco region to listen, first of all, to Tim Wu. I do want to discuss his new book, which he talked about at the Commonwealth Club, titled The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. I do also want to discuss a dropping in to hear the immortal Mort Saul, who is still holding forth with his opinions to an audience. Uh, he does this every week in Mill Valley. It's a great honor to be there in the room with him for an hour. But before I talk about Tim Wu or Mort Saul, I think I need to make good on a promise that has been lingering since January to talk about Jane Mayer's dark money. The New York Times called it one of the 10 best books of the year, the year in question being 2016. And I think it's fair to say that the issues that Jane Mayer raises in this book are going to be with us throughout 2019. Talking about the Koch brothers and their allies is something we probably should devote an entire show to, but I need the right guest for that, and I don't have one. What I'm going to do instead, then, is read from her Chapter 9, Money is Speech, The Long Road to Citizens United. Let me excerpt that for the next, uh, I don't know, 10 to 12 minutes or so and end the segment with it. The chapter starts with a description of a May 17, 2010 black tie audience at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City, where David Koch was being honored for his generosity as a member of the Board of Trustees. In this case, he donated $2.5 million toward the company's upcoming season. Mayor notes the next page that one associate has said that Koch has confided that he gave away approximately 40% of his income each year, which he estimates to be $1 billion. This, of course, left him with an annual income of about $600 million and helped ease his tax burden. He enjoyed the role, a family member said, in part because it brought him respectability. But there was another side to his spending 
that was still then largely secret. While David was happy to put his name on some of the country's most esteemed and beloved cultural and scientific institutions, like the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, and to take a public bow at the ballet, his family's prodigious political spending was a much more private affair. It would take, in fact, years before the faint outlines of the Koch's massive political machinations began to surface through required public tax filings, and the full story may never be known. But a decision by the Supreme Court four months earlier in a case that began over a dispute about a right-wing attack on Hillary Clinton had already launched the family's covert spending into a new, more electorally ambitious phase. At the moment that David Koch took the stage in New York, operatives working for his brother and himself were quietly converting 30 years' worth of ideologic institution building into a machine that would resemble and rival those of the two major political parties. Rather than representing broad-based support, however, theirs was financed by a tiny fraction of the wealthiest families in America, who could now, should they wish, spend their entire fortunes influencing the country's politics. I do want to insert at this point one quote from Tim Wu, commenting about how journalists and academics could be co-opted by money to, <laughs> to work for patrons. He made the comment that, you know, journalists are actually a lot harder to, uh, to line up. Academics, <laughs> easy. And it's no secret at this point that a lot of the Koch success has to do with the quote-unquote think tanks they have funded all over the country. But continuing the read, on January 21st, 2010, the court announced in its 5-4 to decision in the Citizens United case, overturning a century of restrictions banning corporations and unions from spending all they wanted to elect candidates. The court held that so long as businesses and unions didn't just hand their money to the candidates, which could be corrupt, but instead gave it to outside groups that were supporting or opposing the candidates and were technically independent of the campaigns, they could spend unlimited amounts to promote whatever candidate they chose. To reach the verdicts, the court accepted the argument that corporations had the same rights to free speech as citizens. The ruling paved the way for a related decision by an appeals court in the case called Speech Now, which soon after overturned limits on how much money individuals could give to outside groups, too. Previously, contributions to political action committees, or PACs, had been capped at $5,000 per person per year. But now the court found that there could be no donation limits so long as there was no coordination with the candidates' campaigns. Soon, the groups set up to take the unlimited contributions were dubbed super PACs for their augmented new powers. In both cases, the courts embraced the argument that independent spending, as opposed to direct contributions to the candidates, wouldn't result in corruption. From the start, critics like Richard Posner, a brilliant and iconoclastic conservative federal judge, declared the court had reasoned naively pointing out that it was difficult to see what practical difference there is between super PAC donations and direct campaign donations from a corruption standpoint. The immediate impact, as New Yorker writer Jeffrey Tubin summarized it, was that it gave rich people more or less free reign to spend as much as they want in support of their favored candidates. Among the few remaining restraints that the majority of the court endorsed, was the long-standing expectation that any spending in a political campaign should be visible to the public. Justice Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion, predicted that 
Quote, with the advent of the internet, prompt disclosure of expenditures, unquote, would be easier than ever. This, he suggested, would prevent corruption because, quote, citizens can see whether elected officials are in the pocket of so-called money and interests, unquote. Wrote Jane Mayer, the assumption soon proved wrong. Instead, as critics had warned, more and more of the money flooding into elections was spent by secretive nonprofit organizations that claimed the right to conceal their donors' identities. Rich activists such as Richard Mellon Scafey and the Koch brothers had already paved the way to weaponize philanthropy. Now they and other allied donors gave what came to be called dark money to nonprofit quote unquote social welfare groups that claimed the right to spend on elections without disclosing their donors. As a result, the American political system became awash in unlimited, untraceable cash. In striking down the existing campaign finance laws, the courts eviscerated a century of reform. After a series of campaign scandals involving secret donations from the newly rich industrial barons in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, progressives had passed laws limiting spending in order to protect the democratic process from corruption. The laws were meant to safeguard political equality at a time of growing economic inequality. Reformers had seen the concentration of wealth in the hands of oil, steel, finance, and railroad magnates as threatening the democratic equilibrium. The Republican William McKinley's elections in 1896 and 1900, for instance, were infamously lubricated by donations raised by the political organizer Mark Hanna from big corporations like Rockefeller's Standard Oil. In a growing backlash to the corruption at new President Theodore Roosevelt's behest, Congress passed the Tillman Act in 1906, which banned corporate contributions to federal candidates and political committees. By overturning many of these restrictions, the Citizens United decision was in many respects a return to the Gilded Age. Which is certainly going to set me up for Tim Wu in the second segment here. John Paul Stevens, a moderate Republican when first appointed but long part of the court's liberal wing, described the decision as a radical departure from what has been settled First Amendment law. In a lengthy dissent, he argued that the Constitution's framers had enshrined the right of free speech for individual Americans, not corporations, and that to act otherwise was a rejection of the common sense of the American people who have recognized the need to prevent corporations from undermining self-government since the founding and who have fought against the distinctive corrupting potential of corporate electioneering since the days of Teddy Roosevelt. Many analysts attributed the about-face on these vital rules guaranteeing fair elections to the increasingly assertive conservatism of Chief Justice John Roberts's court. Clearly, this was the decisive factor, but there was a backstory too. And that is, Jane Mayer goes on, that for almost four decades, a tiny coterie of ultra-rich activists who wished to influence American politics by spending more than the law would allow had been chafing at the legal restraints. One family had been particularly tireless in the struggle, the DeVos clan of Michigan. The family, whose members became stalwarts in the Koch's donor networks, had made a multi-billion dollar fortune from a remarkably American business adventure, the Amway Direct Marketing Empire. Oh, and if that name DeVos rings a bell, just take a look at who's the current Secretary of Education. Anyway, skipping ahead, Amway was structured to avoid federal taxes. Richard DeVos and J. Van Andel 
achieved this by defining the door-to-door salesmen who sold their beauty, cleaning, and dietary products as, quote, independent business owners, unquote, rather than employees. This enabled the company's owners to skip Social Security contributions and other employee benefits, greatly enhancing their bottom line. It resulted, however, in numerous legal skirmishes with the IRS and the FTC. In a charge that was later dropped, the government alleged the company was little more than a pyramid scheme built upon misleading promises of riches to prospective distributors. The gray zone in which the company operated made its cultivation of political influence important. In 1975, after Grand Rapids Republican Congressman Gerald R. Ford became president, the usefulness of political clout became particularly apparent. While the FTC investigation was going on, DeVos and DeAndel obtained a lengthy meeting with Gerald Ford in the Oval Office. Two of Ford's top aides soon after became investors in the new venture founded by DeVos and Van Andel. After news of their involvement surfaced, the White House aides dropped out, but Amway later hired one of them as a Washington lobbyist. Perhaps coincidentally, the FTC investigation of whether Amway was an illegal pyramid scheme fizzled, resulting only in the company having its knuckles wrapped from misleading advertising about how much its distributors could earn. The company's political activism was so unusually intense that one FTC attorney at the time told Forbes magazine, they're not a business, but some sort of quasi-religious sociopolitical organization. Skipping ahead, the DeVos family nonetheless remained huge financiers of the Republican Party and the growing conservative movement, as well as supporting efforts to undo campaign finance laws. Starting in 1970, they began to direct at least $200 million into virtually every branch of the new rights infrastructure, from think tanks like the Heritage Foundation to academic organizations such as the Intercollegiate Studies Institute which funded conservative publications on college campuses. There's not a Republican president or presidential candidate in the last 50 years who hasn't known the DeVoses, said Saul Anuzis, former chairman of the Michigan Republican Party. Skipping again. In their zeal to implement their conservative vision, few issues are more central to the DeVos family mission than eradicating restraints on political spending. For years, the family funded legal challenges to various campaign finance laws. Ground zero in this fight was the James Madison Center for Free Speech, of which Betsy DeVos became a founding board member in 1997. The nonprofit organization's sole goal was to end all legal restrictions on money in politics. Its honorary chairman, Senator Mitch McConnell, a savvy and prodigious fundraiser. That same year, Betsy DeVos explained her opposition to campaign finance restrictions. Soft money, she wrote in a column, was just Hard-earned American dollars that Big Brother has yet to find a way to control. That is all it is, nothing more. She added, I know a little something about soft money, as my family's the largest single contributor to soft money in the National Republican Party. She said, I've decided, however, to stop taking offense at the suggestion we are buying influence. Now I simply concede the point. They're right. We do expect some things in return. We expect to foster a conservative governing philosophy consisting of limited government and respect for traditional American virtues. Noted Jane Mayer, if the DeVoses expected a return on our investment in the Madison Center, as Betsy had put it, they got one in the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. Well, as Jane Mayer explains, cases were manufactured to present certain questions to the Supreme Court in a certain order and achieve a certain result. The man behind this was soft money maestro Jim Bopp. I do need to point out regularly when I do excerpts like this from a book that you really do need to read the genuine article yourself, dear listener. 
time invested in this particular volume will be time well spent. It should be noted that after Citizens United, these summits that the Kochs would convene to extract money from donors soared from the $13 million they raised in June 2009 to nearly $900 million at a single fundraising session in the years that followed. Stephen Law, president of American Crossroads, the conservative super PAC formed by Republican political operative Karl Rove, soon after the decision, said, This Supreme Court decision essentially gave a good housekeeping seal of approval. President Barack Obama saw a change far more consequential. In his 2010 State of the Union address, Obama made headlines by denouncing the court's decision, saying it reversed a century of law that I believe will open the floodgates for special interests, including foreign corporations, to spend without limit in our elections. In response, Associate Justice Sam Alito Jr. attended the address, was seen shaking his head and mouthing the words, not true, to which Radio Parallax would like to add, well, sorry, Sam, true. We must take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.